We're in a series on the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. This morning we're going to be in chapter 4, if you want to be turning there. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 839 of that Bible. In this series we've been talking about as we look at the first half of the book of Mark, the fact that Jesus is the King and the King has come. That He is our King and He has come. And we're going to see this morning that He comes speaking about His kingdom. That's what He has um, on the surface of these parables that He tells this morning. So let's pray together and then we'll uh, jump right in and read. Please pray with me. Father, we come to You this morning and ask that You would open our eyes, that You would rub the sleep out of them that we might see clearly and see you for who you are. We ask, too, that you would uh, unplug our ears, clean them out, that we might hear, and that your words might go to our heart. Would you use them for our good to change us? You are God. So we come before you now and pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Mark chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verses 21 through 34. And Jesus said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said to them, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, and then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown in the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it's grown, when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. So to it, we we turn this morning. Here in this passage in chapter 4, we've got the the second half here in 4 of of the parables of Jesus. Mark does not tell a lot of the parables of Jesus. Matthew, for instance, Luke tell tell many, many more. But in a couple uh, instances, a couple uh, different places in Mark, he concentrates on the parables of Jesus. These parables were these stories that Jesus would tell using just really common, everyday kind of imagery to try to express and try to show a deeper spiritual truth that's brought to them by way of these just really common illustrations. And he did this in such a way that, that it, would, it would leave people sort of scratching their heads. You know the way stories actually invite you in? To think about the details, to think about what happens. It's, you know, if, if you've ever tried to go to somebody and tell them about your favorite movie, and they said, well, explain the plot to me, and you explain it to them in about 30 seconds, and it just sort of sounds lame when you tell them the plot. But if you were to see the movie, it's entirely different, right? Well, Jesus tells these stories to invite us in that we, we might experience his truth in, in this kind of way, that we might, that we might dig into it and, and find what is here. 
And so uh, we see time and again that when Jesus tells these parables, that some people just walk away essentially scratching their heads, but others come to Jesus, that they might hear what it was all about. It actually draws them closer to Jesus. So that's what we're in the middle of, Jesus telling these parables, these stories. And the ones we're looking at this morning, as Mark tells us, are these parables about the kingdom, that Jesus has come to establish a kingdom. He is a king who really does reign. And whereas we may first think of a kingdom as, as a piece of real estate, the, the ground which a king commands, a kingdom is really a little bit more abstract than that. It is the realm in which a king's rule is recognized and embraced. And that's the way Jesus uses the term here. When he talks about a kingdom, he doesn't talk about God coming and establishing a certain piece of real estate for his people. He comes and talks about God coming in the person of Jesus and bringing his reign at work in our lives. One that is seen just in glimmer now, but one that will one day be seen in the full light of day. His kingdom is coming and it comes in the person of Jesus, the king. So these parables are about this kingdom. And we're going to see here three things about the kingdom of God that Jesus came to bring in here. We're going to see that how it comes and how it looks and how we can embrace it. Okay, How this kingdom comes, how it looks, what it looks like to us, and how we can embrace it. So first, how it comes. Uh, let me just start this way. Do you ever ask yourself the question or think it at some deep level, and, and maybe you're embarrassed even to, to say it out loud, but, but we think questions like this. Is God really at work? Really? And is he really building a kingdom? I mean, is Jesus really doing that? Maybe you look at your own life and think, this is God's kingdom at work? Really? Or in the lives of those around you or in your family? Or you look around at the brokenness of the world around us and think, really? Is he he's doing something? He's really bringing healing and restoration? Because there are so many days and so many ways in which we, we look around and we feel like we don't see it. It seems hidden from us. But you've got Jesus in these parables stepping in and saying, Yes, I am. I am bringing my kingdom. But it is like a seed growing to fruition rather than a bolt of lightning that comes sailing through the air and brings uh, this amazing flash and power. It comes more like a seed. How does it come? It comes in this way, like a seed that grows into harvest. Look with me again. We see this in verses 26 through 29. This harvest that is coming. Jesus uses this illustration again of a a, uh, sower who goes out and sows seed. and, And he says this seed, the seed of the kingdom, will in fact grow to become a harvest. But it comes in ways we wouldn't have expected. It comes like seeds do. It comes slowly and it comes mysteriously. I mean, you see, that's what happens when this guy goes and sows the seed. He goes and he throws it out in the, in the field and then he goes back to his house. And what does he do? He waits for a long time because it takes a long time for a harvest to grow up from the seeds. I mentioned last week as we're in the middle of all the sowing seed parables. My family, we've got a little garden plot in back. And we're getting ready to put seeds in there. But now what we've done first is we've, we've taken those little trays of, of dirt and we put seeds in there and put it in the windowsill in our, in our kitchen.
back, I don't, I don't see it. Where is he? Our fathers have all fallen asleep, died waiting for this and still no coming. But Peter goes on and says this, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What's he saying? God is deliberately slow as he brings in his kingdom. It comes slowly and mysteriously. I mean, that's the part of the picture, too. We see this sower. It says he goes and then he throws the seed out and he goes and sits down at his house. And he does, it says right there, he doesn't know how all this works. Somehow God takes a seed and turns it into a harvest and he doesn't know how. He just watches out there and it begins to come out of the earth and blossom and grow. I remember in high school, in biology class, spending a lot of time trying to figure, try, trying to memorize the process of photosynthesis. And I, and I love to tell you that that was so that I could be more informed about God's world and just could worship Him more. It was, I wanted to pass an exam. And so I needed to know how photosynthesis worked. And some of you could tell us how that works today. But, you know, for a botanist even, do we really, do we understand how plants work? I mean, we can, we can, Break it down and tell you what happens at a cellular level anyway, but, or certainly, but at some point, don't we step back and go, but, but we put a seed in the ground, it grows into this plant and gives us a harvest. We can understand something without really understanding it. Or, to, or maybe not plants, maybe, think about art. Think about a beautiful piece of art. Think about something like um, Michelangelo's uh, statue of David. This, I think it's like 10 feet tall, made out of marble. And you could go up to that statue and imagine that and, and everybody around you is in awe of this thing of beauty. And you think, come on now. Oh, you take a chisel and a hammer and you just make the right little you know, knocks here and there and voila, you've got David. I can explain it to you. Of course not. Of course not. You go and see what an amazing thing of beauty that took such time to create. And that is what is happening here. Like a seed that grows slowly and mysteriously that God is at work. I remember as I was getting ready to come to William and Mary's, the RUF, Reform University Fellowship Pastor, a number of years ago. In our training, one of the things that I found really helpful that was said over and over again is that when you go step onto this campus, in, in this case where there was no RUF before, they said, remember that God is already at work. He's been at work for a long, long time. And he's graciously going to use this as a part of his work, but God gets there first. He is at work, and often in these mysterious ways, under the surface, under the ground, doing things that we can't even see, but that one day is going to come to view, and people will be able to see it and see the beauty of what he is doing. And it's the same for us in our own lives as well. When we tend to think and lose perspective in our own lives, think things like this, where is God? You say he's at work, but I can't see it. So, neither could the farmer, but he was. He was at work in that field growing things that he couldn't see and the, and the farmer didn't see it. It was mysterious to him. And in the same way, you can bank on the fact that God is at work in you as well and in your life as well through Christ. Even in those points in which you do not see the fruit of that, the fruit is coming and he is at work under the surface doing good things. Commentator puts it this way. The faith Jesus uh, requires is to sleep and rise in humble confidence that God has invaded this troubled world, not with a crusade, but with a seed that will grow into a fruitful harvest. It says it doesn't come with flash and power. Instead, it comes hidden like this, like a seed, but God is at work. 
And when you think about the way this seed is presented in this parable, it shows us that God's work is not only slow and mysterious, it's inexorable. It cannot be stopped. This is not a farmer's almanac that tells us about the warnings of drought and the need to fertilize our seed. Jesus is boiling this down to a very simple picture. The seed is going to grow, and it is going to come to harvest. And the farmer doesn't, isn't even responsible for that. It comes, and first it sends forth this little shoot and this sprig, and then, and then, it, then it blossoms into a, this ear, and then it fills with grain, and then it's ready for the harvest. It will be accomplished. And I think part of the reason we are reminded of this is because we need to remember that God is at work and that nothing is going to stop that. And nothing really endangers that. And that, work, that is true for us individually and it's true for us corporately as well. I, I can remember innumerable conversations that I've had with college students. Not to pick on college students, but I'm going to pick on you for a second. Partly because you're at that one of the most crucial times of life where there are so many decisions that lie in front of you. And I've had those decisions with those conversations with others of as, as well. But you know when you get to that point where you've got to make a decision, you've got to choose option A or cho- option B. It might be you're getting ready to graduate and you're going to take this job or that job, assuming there's an offer on the table. Or uh, you've got to pick a major and you've got to... You got to you got to take this major or that major, or you're thinking about getting married. Do I marry this person or or do I not? And you come with all this angst before God, saying, "If I if I choose the wrong thing, then my life will go hurtling over the edge and crash and burn, and I will be destroyed." And I'm only 22, right? <laughs> or whatever age. And you know, there's there's something right in this that, that there is weight to our decisions. We call we are called as Christians to make faithful decisions in very weighty areas of life. But at the same time, we need to be reminded that God is going to accomplish His purposes. When you face a decision like that, what do you do? You pray and you ask for godly advice from other people and you read the Scripture to see the things that God values. But at the end of the day, you know He's not just going to give you the answer written in the sky. Most likely, He's going to call you to make a wise decision as best you can, trusting that He's at work. He is going to do good. And it came to this first audience in Rome, to these believers in the midst of a government that was hostile to them. that was on the verge of putting Christians to death for their faith. And he comes to these people and he says, God is at work and His kingdom is going to grow. I don't care about Caesar. It will. You can rest in that. And it did. And the gospel continued to grow and bear fruit in communist China for years upon years when nobody could be a Christian in public. And it grew underground. And it's grown in democracies and it's grown in oppression. And it's going to grow here regardless of who's in power. And regardless of what policies are enacted, we are reminded as Christians, which is our first and foremost identity, that God is at work and His kingdom is growing and it will happen. And so we can be a part of that joyfully knowing that He is at work. And all our labor can find itself first under that reality that starting it all, underneath it all, upholding it all, is God's work. And not our sweaty, uh, fretful labor on His behalf. He is at work. So that's how uh, it comes. We see here, too, a picture of how it looks. Look with me again in in verse uh, 30 to 32. You know, he says, uh, he looks around, he says, okay, what can I compare the kingdom to? Let's take a mustard seed. You know, what can I compare the kingdom to? Let's think of the most beautiful, magnificent thing we can think of. No, let's think of the most insignificant thing we could possibly think of. 
that for, for the Jews, what was sort of their paradigmatic smallest seed ever, I think a botanist would say it's not actually the mustard seed, but for them it was the mustard seed. What's the smallest, most insignificant thing? This little grain of mustard seed. But when you go plant that in your garden, it's going to become the biggest plant in the whole garden. I read that a mustard seed grows to be seven feet tall. Okay, that doesn't sound big to us if you're putting it next to a forest, but remember the world of this illustration is a garden, and it is enormous compared to everything else growing in the garden. So enormous, in fact, that he says this, this smallest of seeds grows into this huge plant and the birds of the air can come and nest in it, that it will give shelter and shade to the world around it. And it's an Old Testament image that comes up several times in the Old Testament of, of a kingdom that comes and flourishes in power. When uh, God comes to Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, with this dream, he says, you are like this enormous tree that reaches up to the heights of heaven and the nations have come to flock in your branches. And then Daniel comes to him and says, this dream is telling you actually that, that God's coming in judgment and that tree will be cut down. But there are other places in scripture where it speaks of God's people this way as this tree that will grow and spread out its branches to encompass the whole world. It's a picture of power and beauty. And he says, that's what happens when this kingdom grows. It starts small and insignificant, but you don't see the end. You don't see it when it is in its full growth, but one day we will. You know, maybe we wouldn't use uh, the illustration from a garden if we were thinking of things in the majesty of the kingdom when it comes in all its fullness. Maybe we think more things like, uh, you know, mountains. I just finished reading a book called Into Thin Air by John Krakauer, and it talks about the 1996 expeditions to the top of Mount Everest, which was one of the deadliest years ever in climbing Mount Everest. And one of the interesting things about this book, this, this guy John Krakauer, is he goes and he's flying into Kathmandu, where he's going to start his journey to the top of Everest. And the clouds break, and he sees the, he sees the mountain range, and then he sees Everest. He's flying, and he looks out the window, and he realizes the top of the mountain is at eye level with him. It's 29,000, 29 feet in the air, and he thinks, that mountain is as tall as an airplane flies. <laughs> the highest mountain in the world, the most impressive, outstanding, beautiful, magnificent thing. Maybe that's what we'd look to and say, when God's kingdom comes, it will be seen from end of the earth to end of the earth. It will come in all its power and glory, but right now it is a seed. It is like a seed growing. And that's what Jesus says in his ministry, that it comes like this seed. It looks insignificant now, but it is going to grow to greatness. The Bible's filled of examples like this. Think about Abram, later called Abraham. Abram, this guy that's pulled out of this pagan nation, and he, God comes to him in a dream, and he says, I'm going to take you into another land, and I'm going to make a great nation out of you. So he goes. And for year after year after year, no children out of which this nation is going to come. And his name, Abram, means exalted father. Imagine introducing yourself to people. I am exalted father, and I have no children. <laughs> and to make matters worse, God, as he reaffirms his promise to Abraham, he changes his name from exalted father to father of multitudes. No baby. Until finally, when he's 100 years old, he brings a child and he begins the work of bringing to fruition this promise where he said, You who have no children, one day you will have children that are more numerous than the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. And as we see that promise of Abraham come right directly through the line of Jesus, we see his people and his followers, millions upon millions for thousands of years now, as God's people spreading and giving praise and glory to him. It comes true, but it began like this. That is all what Jesus is saying. 
Or maybe uh, around here, early 1980s, a band of William and Mary students get together and begin to worship together on Sundays. They call a pastor. Uh, The church starts to grow. Sooner or later, they're in a school gym and they move around. Very humble beginnings. So humble, in fact, that for one period of time, this little band of believers they met uh, in in one of the local um, uh, funeral homes of all the inauspicious places to begin a church. Um, and, you know, over the 20-something years, Grace Covenant, here it is. Here we are in Williamsburg. Are we a tree reaching to the top of uh, the world? No, but God's good work here, slowly doing good things with a bunch of ordinary people like us. Or maybe a picture of ministry like this. 1965, Millard and Linda Fuller visited uh, what I, I don't know this is true, but it sounds like sort of one of those Christian hippie communes. Uh, it, it was called Koinonia Farm in Americas, Georgia. It was a small interracial Christian community, and it was headed by this guy named Clarence Jordan, who's a biblical scholar and a, and a farmer. Started in 1942. So the Fullers come and, and spend some time there, and they, with this guy Jordan, they, dre- they dream up this idea of partnership housing, where, where people would, would be able to get housing by working side by side with volunteers that they might have just good, simple, solid places to live. So 1968, they started their first project, 42 houses on half-acre sites, and they sold them at no profit and no interest. And by 1976, they had established this as Habitat for Humanity International. Today, it's, they've built over 300,000 uh, houses. They've sheltered over a million and a half people in more than 3,000 communities across the world. And it started like this, a little mustard seed. But God's good work, his kingdom coming to flourishing out of obscurity. Or maybe like this. Jesus, a king, riding in Jerusalem on a donkey in humility. And yeah, he heard crowds that day saying, Hosanna in the highest, as they sing praise to this king. But a, year, but, excuse me, a week later, cries from the crowd again of crucify him, crucify him. We see Jesus hanging on a cross in disgrace, forsaken by his followers, forsaken by the world, forsaken by his Father. We hear the conversations of his people in the ensuing couple days. We thought he was the one. We thought he was the king. And now all of it in dust and ashes. It wasn't the end of the story. Because the third day came. Jesus rising from the dead, leaving behind death and decay, ascending to heaven, exalted at the right hand of the Father, coming again in glory. This is the way Paul puts it in Philippians. Jesus found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Begins like this and ends in glory. That's what, how it comes and how it looks. How do we embrace it, this kingdom of God that comes like this? How do we take it in? Look again at verses 24 and 25. Jesus said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. He says, pay attention to the measure you use. He's talking about measuring things out, just like it sounds. When you go to bake something in your kitchen, he says, what are you going to pull out if you're going to bake something big? Do you take out the teaspoon or you take out the big old cup, measuring cup, and scoop with that? 
My kids, every morning, uh, when we get up, we get, they, they come to breakfast, and they want cereal. So we say, and they're old enough to do this, so we say, well, go, go get a bowl and spoon. So they do. They go over to the drawer, and they pull out these, these little, you know, four- and five-year-old size plastic bowls that they eat cereal out of. <clears throat> They reach up in the spoon drawer, and they pull out the biggest spoons they can possibly find, the ones that are like twice as big as their mouths. And they won't settle for anything less. And they come, and they sit down to their cereal, and they've got this huge spoon to dig in. And that's what Jesus is getting at. What's the measure you're going to use? What are you going to scoop with? What are you going to scoop into me with? He says, he says, here I am giving you the kingdom, speaking it to you at work in your life and all around you. How are you going to take this in? He says, come with all that you have. Come with a huge measure that you might dig in deeply. And as you dig in deeply and take out from me that it would be filled back in and you would know this incredible abundance and overflowing. So maybe you're somebody here uh, that don't even know how you wandered into church today, or maybe you're just starting to think about some of the claims of Jesus, and maybe you feel like something is just starting to ring true for you. What are you going to do with the knowledge that you have? What are you going to do with that little bit of light maybe that you see that's beginning to appear? Maybe you're starting to think, maybe Christians aren't crazy after all. And maybe I don't have to commit intellectual suicide to come and follow Jesus. What are you going to do with that knowledge? Are you going to dig in deeper? Maybe some of us, maybe you've been following Christ for years. What are you doing with what He has given you and what He's working into your life? Are you diving in? Are you jumping in with both feet? Are you pulling out the shovel instead of the spoon that you might dig in deep? He says, come. With the measure you use to take from me, it will be poured out to you. And then He says what, what, what feels like this sort of paradox. He says, those who have, those who, have who are digging in with the big spoon, they're going to be given even more. More knowledge of Christ, more intimacy with Him, more a part in His purpose and plan and work all around us. But He says those who don't have, even that little, that little bit is going to be taken away. What are we doing with what we hear and what we know and what we've seen of Jesus? Commentator says this, The degree to which one hears the parables, the extent to which one allows the kingdom to break upon oneself, will determine the measure of one's understanding. Those who hear, those who knock until the door is opened, will find the kingdom disclosed to them. But those of hurried search, whose knock at the door of life is tentative or brief, will find a once joyous invitation to enter the kingdom to have faded into a mirage of disbelief. Even what little they have will be taken away. What measure are we going to use as we come and embrace what Christ has brought to us? Just to wrap up, the, the, these parables, it begins with this picture, again, very ordinary. A guy who lights a lamp, he walks into a room. Does he say, what do you do with a lamp? Do you, do you stick it under the bed? Do you stick it under a bowl where no one will see it? He says, of course not. You lift it up so that it sheds light into the whole room. And I think Jesus begins these parables of the kingdom because he's saying right now, it's, it feels so often as if that light really is under the bed or under a bowl, but one day it's going to be revealed in all its Glory. Are we seeing that light shining? Do we have our eyes on that? This work of Jesus, this kingdom work, at work even now, in some ways still in such, such uh, seed form, or the little sprout coming up. It may look insignificant now in your own life. You may feel like it looks insignificant when you look around at this church. 
You may like, feel like it looks insignificant when you look at the cause of Christ around the world, but God is at work building his kingdom, and he calls us in, he invites us in, that we might know him and be a part of that. This mysterious, slow-growing, but beautiful and glorious kingdom. That's what he brings us in Jesus. And that's what our king has come to give us. May we use the biggest of measures as we dive right in. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would open again, open our eyes and open our ears. Lord, you are so good to us. So much so that it almost feels like a very weird and not possibly true fairy tale. That things could be this broken and that you didn't give up on us. You didn't walk away. But you cared enough to come and rescue us. You cared enough not simply to uh, drop healing into our laps or from the sky. But instead you sent uh, your love to us in the person of your son. You came in the flesh. That we might know that you are real and that you care about us. And that you are more powerful than our sin and brokenness and fallenness. That your sacrifice on the cross for us wipes away all sin of ours that we might know real life and there are days when it feels so small help us to hold on to the fact that you are at work and it is true in this work that you have begun of the kingdom you've inaugurated you are coming back and you're going to bring it to all its fullness give us faith as we look forward to that day and give us faith and steadfastness as we uh, participate in that reality even now even today even this week be with us we ask in the name of jesus amen